Before we get started, just a quick note about things you can do to support eccentricity at the moment. As you may or may not know, it costs a little bit of money to run a podcast and to keep it online and available for free. So to help us do that, we've recently teamed up with Glasgow-based artist Kat Ingle and asked her to design our first Accentricity t-shirts. They're on the merch page of the Accentricity website and you'll also find a link in the episode description. If you buy one, you'll be doing us a favour, but you'll also get a genuinely banging t-shirt. So it's all winning really. If you'd like to, you can also email your t-shirt pics to accentricity.podcast at gmail.com and we'll share them on our social media and on the website. And if you're not a t-shirt person, or if you'd rather help us out with a small monthly donation, there's also a link in the episode description to our Patreon and Steady subscription pages. We're always and forever grateful for whatever support you're able to give. Accentricity Series 2, The Moving Project. Stories about migration, language and identity from around the world. Over the past year, we've been working with a group of people, teaching them to podcast and helping them to tell personal stories about the experience of moving from one place to another. This is Maria's story. Maria grew up in Bulgaria with a Czech dad and a Bulgarian mum. She left Bulgaria as a young adult and has now been living in Scotland for 10 years. First, you'll hear Maria's 10-minute audio piece, which is about her relationship with her accent in English. She's training to be a speech therapist and wonders about how her clients will respond to someone who sounds like her and whether they might respond differently if she sounded Scottish. Like everyone who took part in the project, Maria was brand new to podcasting at the beginning and she made her episode without professional equipment using just a recording app on her mobile phone and free computer software. After Maria's audio piece, you'll hear a conversation we had over the internet after she'd completed the project. In it, I asked her a bit more about growing up with two languages, about leaving Bulgaria, about being a migrant in Scotland, and about her work with the Bilingualism Matters Research Network at the University of Edinburgh. If you're interested in subscribing to the Bilingualism Matters podcast that she mentions in the interview, it's called Much Language Such Talk, and you can find a link in the episode description. But first, here's Maria's audio piece. How you speak is who you are. I'm fascinated by the idea of being able to control my identity and how I present to other people using my accent. When I write, I often change up my handwriting, imagining the different versions of myself I could be. And I wish I could do that with my speech as well. For example, one of the things my accent can convey is my connection to a place. When I arrived in the States as a teenager, attending a high school in North Carolina, I spontaneously started speaking like the other girls I was friends with. I remember at the time it was really cool to say phrases like, that's so sketchy, or I can't even. And I definitely imitated a close friend of mine who was pronouncing words like street and strong as street and strong. If I have any trace of Americanness in the way I speak now, it's a leftover from that time. Several years later, I found myself studying at university in England. After only a few months, I was using less R and adopted some other English accent features. However, I have now lived in Scotland for almost 10 years and I still don't sound as Scottish as I would like to. I could try to force it, but it does not sound alright. I am not the only one in this situation. Monica, another Bulgarian friend of mine who lives in the UK, is also not completely satisfied with how she sounds. We caught up recently online. In this part of our conversation, she describes how she's been feeling about her accent. Now that I live in Cambridge, I, I work, I'm surrounded by all British people. And I guess feeling a bit different and sometimes saying things in a, in not the exactly correct way made me feel a bit embarrassed and just i guess wanting to be 
to fit a bit more. Also, my career aspiration is to be a clinical psychologist. And I became a bit, well, a bit worried, I guess, if people are going to relate to me, if they're born in the UK, British people, and I have an accent, uh, whether they're going to relate, whether they're going to trust me, how this is going to affect my relationship with my clients, I guess. So it kind of pushed me to explore if I can do something and have a bit more control, I guess, over how I sound. These concerns led her to what, to me, is a very drastic measure. She met up with an accent coach. In the, in the beginning, he assessed my pronunciation. He said I speak in a clear way that he can understand everything. So the problem is not big. <laughs> so he, he didn't say that there is anything real to fix, but there are things that would make me just sound a bit less Bulgarian, I guess. Yeah, he did give me homework and I didn't really do it. <laughs> Although it appears not to have been a bad experience, Monica's sudden lack of energy to follow through suggests that she may have been facing a deeper issue. Part of me knows that I would never completely fit in. I will always have this Bulgarian part of me. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say I am completely 100% British. It seems that despite not being very sure how much she likes her accent, Monica is pretty certain about her identity. I suspect that is why someone as disciplined as her wouldn't practice towards her goal of sounding less Bulgarian. Now I will shift gears and talk about someone whose self-perception was actually a powerful motivator for change. So my story of learning Mandarin begins with going off on the... the this is Michael. He was born and raised in Edinburgh and he happens to be very good at deliberately changing his accent in English. However, while working in Taiwan and learning Mandarin, his accent changed in a way that he had not anticipated. So my real massive input off Chinese was from my boss and then this language exchange partner. They were both women and Michael spontaneously picked up their speech mannerisms and accent. Just little phrases I would, I would make I, I'd say ah at the end of a lot of my sentences which is kind of like putting on a exclamation mark or uh, use words that are kind of generally associated with female English which is like taoyan which is like I, oh I can't stand it or like icky. However, Michael didn't really stand out in Taiwan because the Taiwanese accent is generally considered to be slightly more feminine in the context of Mandarin. But when he moved to Kaifeng in the north the following year, Michael's local friends quickly pointed out to him that his way of speaking didn't really match his English persona. It became incredibly noticeable that I was going around with a very... Uh, and, and uh, my whole attitude aspect was much more uh, feminine, essentially. As he said in Chinese right there, he was speaking in a strange way. So Michael set out on a quest to find a new accent model. I really loved the gruff way that the, uh, the taxi drivers would speak to each other. So I, I spent a lot of time listening to them and chatting to taxi drivers as you go around and just trying to completely copy. When they said hello to each other, they wouldn't say ni hao, which everyone's going to say nua lei. Uh, it was like, what are you doing or what are you up to? And also like the, the how they would say okay in sort of standard Mandarin, it's like xiang, but they would go zhong. His efforts did pay off to the amusement of his friends. His biggest success, however, was with the taxi drivers themselves. I, I would never get ripped off by taxi drivers if I was properly using the very local accent and sounded sounded like I'd been there a while. Whereas if I was to, uh, well, I've, I've seen, I saw other other Westerners who were living there would get ripped off, have to pay double. As we've heard both from Monica and Michael, the identity that an accent gives you and your relationship to that identity can be an important motivator for change. 
personally, as I am studying to become a speech and language therapist in Scotland. I have also sometimes felt insecure about the way I speak, that I don't sound Scottish enough. I think one of the key reasons for that is that I don't really have any close best friend type female friends who are my age and also are Scottish. Most of my Scottish input comes from people who are either a bit older or a bit younger than me or who are at a different stage in their life altogether. So with my failure to sound Scottish, I very much relate to Monica's worries about my client's willingness to trust me. Actually, in my linguistic research, I have come across studies, one of them by Lev Ari and Kesar in 2010, which suggest that people are less likely to believe trivia facts when they hear them pronounced with a foreign accent than when they hear them in a prestigious native accent. Thankfully, Monica's mentor has a very different take on our issues, as Monica told me herself. My supervisor here in Cambridge, her helped me to actually realize I can bring in the, this part of me which was has been used to being the different person in the room and people who usually need to access like psychology services, they usually feel different as well. So that would be something good to bring in. This made me think how both Monica and I have underestimated the variety of clients we might see. According to a government report from June 2020, 21% of primary school pupils in Britain also speak a language other than English. An older survey from the mid-2000s found that in Scotland at least 11,000 pupils speak at least 104 different languages. Britain has a wonderful language diversity and to be honest, I actually feel really proud to be a part of it. The writer, Amy Chua, has said that a foreign accent is a sign of bravery, and I couldn't agree more. As we have heard, people notice our accents and comment on them. They may distrust us or even rip us off. However, if we believe that our accent reflects something important about us, then I think it is up to us to uphold it and make peace with it. You've told me about um, growing up in Bulgaria with a Czech grandmother, is that right? Yes. Um, so what was that like when you were little? Like, did you did you grow up kind of feeling 100% Bulgarian or did you feel Czech as well? I think uh, when I was younger, I definitely felt Czech as well uh, because of her. I spent a lot of time with her. She was looking after me because when I was born my mom was still studying medicine and um, after that she was in her early career so she had to do a lot of uh, traveling a lot of work and a lot of exams so my uh, paternal grandmother stepped in a lot and she spoke to me only in Czech she sang Czech songs to me and uh, we looked at uh, I guess books in Czech and her family in the Czech Republic would sometimes send us uh, recorded VHS tapes of things that they had recorded from TV for me to look at. So I grew up with lots of Czech culture and language around me. And I definitely felt, um, well, I guess, at least half Czech uh, compared to the other kids. And I guess it's very predictable that when I started going to uh, primary school and just the more years I went to primary school and then moved to secondary school, gradually I had less contact with my grandmother, although I still saw her weekly. And yeah, that uh, just gradually led me to feel very, almost no Czech identity at all. And I was really annoyed when uh, I realized that I can have a Bulgarian ID uh, because I already had a Czech passport and it's a, at that point in time the law didn't allow uh, a dual citizenship with um, a Czech citizenship. So yeah, I felt like I was denied my Bulgarianness. So I think that also helped me kind of uh, feel even more Bulgarian because I was denied it. So yeah. 
Interesting. So did you kind of actively turn away from your Czech identity a little bit or was that something that you felt happened to you, if you know what I mean? I think it just drifted away almost. I don't think I actively turned away from it because I still had a weekly contact with my grandmother and my uncle who also spoke Czech to me. Uh, And my dad also still speaks a blend of Bulgarian and Czech to me. Uh, So I still had lots of contact, but um, yeah, I think it's just the circumstances kind of overwhelmed that part. Not that I was thinking too actively about it, but when I was little, I was also quite a shy kid. Um, So I think, yeah, when I was listening to the interview with your mom, actually, I really related to her when she was saying that she doesn't completely fit in um, with her Scottish um, classmates because she felt slightly different uh, and having a slightly different cultural background at home. So obviously my mom is Bulgarian and I didn't have that entirely um, Czech, uh, I guess, uh, environment at home, but uh, I think my grandmother had contributed a lot to it. So yeah, it it was mixed and I felt mixed. It's interesting because with my mum, I'd always thought that situation was quite unusual. So, so yeah, I gave you this interview that I'd done with my mum to work on for one of the assignments that we did as part of the moving yes. project. Yeah, and it was my mum talking about being raised in Scotland by her Polish granny and kind of speaking Polish before she learned to speak English. Um, and I thought that was really unusual. But it when you sort of you said, no, this is very familiar to me. This is just like my situation. I wondered if maybe it's not as unusual as I think it is, possibly. Yeah, and um, I was surprised, actually, uh, to realise that I also thought it was unusual for me growing up in Bulgaria, but at some point I realised there are other kids like that. And I remember uh, I was in my last year in high school and I had gone to the capital Sofia to do exams. I can't remember what they were for. I think university entrance exams. And while waiting outside of the classroom where the exam was going to take place, I started chatting to a guy and it just uh, came up that he also has a Czech family and he had grown up in Bulgaria as bilingual and bicultural, I guess. So I that was my first uh, kind of realization oh it's not as rare as I thought this is and I, it almost kind of made me feel um, I don't know that uh, there is some kind of a, a community or something not that it's a community but like uh, that um, I'm not totally weird <laughs> but yeah the more I start traveling around the world the more I realize that for many people this kind of multiculturalness is just the norm it's just not very common in Bulgaria, I think. Okay, yes, because I sometimes wonder if, if the world... <laughs> sometimes I feel like the world is a lot more multilingual than we think it is because oh, yeah. we always end up speaking the dominant language of the place we're in or if, if only a couple of people have a language in common, you obviously use the language. So, like, in Scotland, I think that we don't... Even in the Highlands and Islands, we don't hear Gaelic spoken that often because whenever there's someone around who doesn't speak Gaelic, you switch to English. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it doesn't mean it's not spoken a lot. It just means it doesn't get spoken as much in public places and to outsiders and things. So I almost feel like, yeah, there's there's all this kind of multilingual activity under the surface. Um, Probably not just in the UK, probably everywhere. Like even in my family... Uh, often my dad would switch to Bulgarian when my mom is there, even though she understands Czech now pretty well, or at least our version of it. Um, but it's almost kind of an automatic thing that you feel you have to do. Did you ever, growing up, feel like Czech was your secret language? Uh, I have felt like that in public. Um, but even so, I can't be 100% sure that there won't be someone who also understands Czech nearby. I remember uh, standing with my dad in a big queue and wanting to complain about the people around us. <laughs> so I just switched to 100% Czech without any Bulgarian mixes. Um, but yeah, it's quite rare actually I end up using it that way, but it has been useful. Yeah. 
do you do, do you still speak Czech at all? Um, not much. Uh, when I speak to my uh, father, we, I guess, code switch and code mix at all uh, a lot. So uh, we often use Bulgarian words and Czech grammatical endings, and it's almost like pretending to speak Czech, but it's not really because most of the vocabulary is actually borrowed from Bulgarian because it's just what comes to mind more easily. So and later when I studied linguistics, I learned that this is actually a pretty typical thing. So people tend to uh, first forget the nouns and verbs. So, but they remember the grammatical endings. So they would borrow the nouns and verbs, but stick the grammatical endings to them, which is, I realized, oh yeah, that's exactly what I've been doing almost my whole life. Um, but many years, well, many years ago, I think maybe in 2014, I, um, or 13, I ended up going to a Czech summer school for a whole month. It was um, from a program funded by the Czech Ministry of International Affairs or something like that. And they had funded uh, a one month Czech language course and living expenses paid as well for uh, a group of people from all over the world. And uh, that was a very interesting experience for me because especially the first couple of days when I arrived I was extremely frustrated I can't use Bulgarian borrowings because I knew people won't understand me it really forced me to speak just in Czech and it was quite difficult I had to pause a lot and stop myself mid-word saying the wrong word um, and at the end of that at the end of that course I think my Czech was at a much better level which then, because I didn't use when I left uh, summer school, just went back to normal. So yeah, I know it can come back if I needed to, but I just haven't needed it to come back. Does it? So it's interesting then to think about. You've got it, it's almost like you've got it submerged in your brain, but it's not kind of active at the moment. Is that something? Like, is it comforting to know that it's something buried deep in your brain that you could still access? Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, recently I've been trying to mildly activate it. Um, I just felt the craving, you can say. Um, I started listening to a Czech podcast that I found randomly. And a couple of days ago, I actually uh, looked up the blog that these two podcasters write and I just read one of their blog posts and because I was really interested in the topic um, I it was quite easy to read even if there were occasional words that I didn't understand I just looked them up quickly and I kept reading and I think it, whichever language I've been learning that is for me the most effective method just find a topic that you really want to learn about and then uh, you won't feel so frustrated when you don't understand some of the text or some of the speech. So uh, yeah, that helped even in this case, although it's just for reading, um, I haven't actually been speaking. What do you think, you talked about kind of feeling the craving to be speaking Czech. Do you think something kind of triggered that for you or is it just something that you feel now and again? Uh, I think I feel it now and again. I don't know if anything in particular triggered it but it could have been related to memories you know um, my Czech grandmother and my uh, uncle have passed away so uh, I don't really speak uh, as much as I used to because they're not around um, and occasionally if I think about them or I remember them maybe that leads to a craving for Czech uh, language a few days later uh, but I haven't actually directly observed it. I'm just thinking about that. I also, last year, maybe it's related to cooking as well. At some point, I discovered this website that um, uh, gives really clear recipes for traditional Czech meals. That uh, My mom actually passed this website on to me. And uh, I was able to cook some of my childhood meals. And probably that also kind of triggered uh, a desire to uh, immerse myself in it a bit more. 
Um, so we've talked about your kind of Czech side and then obviously you left Bulgaria quite early on in life as well. So could you tell me a little bit about what that was like leaving Bulgaria for the first time? Um, so I, the first time I left Bulgaria was when I was 17. I went on a year abroad in the States. Uh, it's a scholarship that I won uh, that I hadn't really had the ambition to win. I had just entered the competition because I just entered all the competitions that came up at that time. Um, so that was quite surprising. Um, and I hadn't planned or had any particular desire to go to the States, but going there was probably uh, what led to me to later move to the UK. Um, uh, the first couple of months of moving were very difficult because uh, prior to then I was uh, living uh, quite a sheltered life, I guess. I was really connected to my family, spending a lot of time with them. And uh, so it was my first kind of really abrupt separation from my family. And I was really sad for the first three months. But then I think probably because I was quite young, uh, I somehow adapted and uh, then really enjoyed myself. And towards the end of that school year, I felt really sad to have to leave as well. Uh, so overall, it was a really positive experience and um, it led me to uh, feel more comfortable speaking English and uh, feel, I guess, the bravery that I can manage on my own. Um, so when the time came came to have to decide where to go for university. I also I felt kind of the uh, pull to the adventure of leaving Bulgaria and see what it is like if I can um, look after myself and uh, make it on my own. <laughs> well, not really on my own because I still am very much in touch with my family and have their support. But yeah, uh, it's still uh, something I felt uh, I would really like to do. So yeah. What was it like? Because you kind of spoke a bit about feeling a little bit Czech and feeling a bit Bulgarian. But then when you went to America, did people kind of see you as Bulgarian? Like, what? how did that feel in terms of who you were and your identity? Do you know what I mean? Um, that was interesting in several kind of respects because uh, at that time I had already uh, started drifting away from my Czech identity. Um, I felt much more Bulgarian having gone to high school and primary school. And uh, I felt very Bulgarian, but in the States, no one had heard about Bulgaria. Oh. So for them, I was European. Um, I was in that school with two German girls. So I think more people were familiar with Germany as a concept. So they were German, I was European. And I find that actually fit me quite well because also at the time, I had to travel with my Czech passport and it was the first time I had to formally use my Czech surname Dokovova, which is uh, what I ended up use, having to use now as well, uh, as opposed to the Bulgarian one, which is Dokova. Uh, so I, at the same time, if, uh, when I was feeling the most Bulgarian, I ended up being forced to have a different name, which I didn't necessarily identify with. And I was forced to use my Czech passport, which I guess legally was my nationality, but uh, I didn't feel it. Uh, so I guess being considered European was very fitting for that time. <laughs> and then that's really interesting because then when you moved to the UK later, was being European in America then different from being Bulgarian in the did you become Bulgarian in the UK again or yes yes I did actually because I um one of the reasons I came to Edinburgh is because I had a friend from my high school who uh I knew well and he was going to study in Edinburgh so I thought if he is going to do it I can do it so I already had some connections with Bulgarian friends here and when I arrived um I discovered that uh, basically the IT department in the university was uh, kind of a, an informal embassy of Bulgarian Romania because there were so many Bulgarian and Romanian students. Uh, so there were plenty of opportunities to meet up with Bulgarians. And I think uh, 
at some point I had more Bulgarian friends in Edinburgh than I had Bulgarian friends back in Bulgaria, just because there's such a huge population of Bulgarians here. So yeah, definitely felt more Bulgarian here. That's really interesting. So have you found that in Edinburgh, have you kind of kept in touch with what's going on in Bulgaria, kept in touch with kind of Bulgarian culture and traditions and things? Um, I have, uh, but probably not as much as, as some other people have. Um, I think I'm one of the rare cases of people from what I know who don't miss Bulgarian foods. Um or I don't get cravings for them. Uh, and when it comes to different traditions, uh, I would only do them if I if there are enough people I know around me who would also engage in them. So I've missed many Easter uh, preparations just because I would have been the only person to do something and it just didn't feel like there is any point to uh, do all the Easter traditions. But uh, yeah, and also there is another tradition, like in the beginning of spring, Bulgarians give each other uh, little bracelets made of uh, red and white string, which is a very delightful, I think, tradition. I really like it, but when the majority of people around me uh, don't know about it, it just becomes really uh, tiring and it, it just doesn't feel as special as having to explain the same thing, thing over and over again to people who kind of kind of get it. Uh, so um, also sometimes I'll just give maybe one of these bracelets to a Bulgarian I know or um, someone who is very close to me and that would be it and yeah I won't bother spreading them to the whole world as I used to do in the first years when I arrived here. So yeah, I think I just wear uh, wore down a little bit with my enthusiasm for traditions. So you, although you have kind of Bulgarian friends in Edinburgh, you don't kind of you're not like completely immersed in Bulgarian culture, or no. I think um, as the years went by um, and we graduated from the University of Edinburgh, many moved away. I had moved away for a bit as well, and then I came back. So my group of Bulgarian friends here is much smaller now um and that definitely is a factor in this um and also even back then uh when i had lots of bulgarian friends i actually i actively avoided that's probably <laughs> something bad to say but i actually actively avoided going to uh bulgarian society events because i know that i dislike the people i was still friends with the majority of people who went to the bulgarian society but I just felt like I was more curious to explore other societies and spend my time actually uh, just doing other things uh, as opposed to actively and formally maintaining that side of me. I felt like it's not threatened in any way. Why should I? I'm, I'm not particularly missing Bulgaria. I'm quite excited to be here. Uh, so in my first years in Edinburgh, I didn't necessarily fully immerse myself in everything Bulgarian because I didn't feel it's threatened. That's really interesting the way you phrase it because I know my PhD research was with a group of kids who'd moved from Poland to Glasgow and one of the kind of main findings to come out of it is that all of them were quite different in the way that they engaged with their Polish identity and Polish language as well and culture and things like that and I did definitely definitely get a strong sense that a lot of it was to do with how how threatened they felt in their identity as a Polish person and they definitely experienced different levels of hostility for example as migrants in the UK and they talked about having different experiences of that and I wondered if some of them kind of engaged more with their Polish identity because they felt it was something that might make them be unwelcome kind of thing um and I don't know, it's it's interesting when you talk about your migration, ex well, you talked about the, the first move to America being quite traumatic in the first couple of months, but in general, you talk about it, I don't know if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's something quite exciting and maybe quite a positive experience. Yes. Is Have you ever felt, because, so how long have you been in Edinburgh now? Uh, well, I've had some breaks, but I arrived in 2011. Mm. 
So I suppose you've been in the UK through Brexit and there's I, I think there's been a bit of a shift in terms of how how welcoming the country is to people to migrants and people moving around and the idea of migration in general is that a shift that you've noticed or have you have you felt that kind of has it affected you in any way that kind of change in the discourse around migration um no and the reason for that i think is firstly that i until now i've spent almost all of my years in the uk in some way engaged with the university and universities are generally very positive of international students and welcoming and uh, the other reason is that I've spent also most of my years in Scotland, especially in Edinburgh, which is, again, a very welcoming town. And I've actually, um, I remember this one case, I was in a pub and this older lady asked me where I'm from and I told her I'm from Bulgaria. And then she said, good on you. Well, you're welcome here. Oh. We, the Scottish people, are not like those down in England. <laughs> we didn't vote for Brexit. So I've actually felt super welcomed. Um, but I have heard from uh, friends who live in England that maybe they have noticed a shift of, shift of attitudes there, especially in uh, smaller towns. Um, but that's not my experience. I'm very, very pleased to hear that that's not been your experience. <laughs> that makes me very happy to hear. Um, so you've been in Edinburgh for, what, nearly 10 years around about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This September it will be 10 years. Does any part of you, do you, in terms of what your cultural identity is now, does any part of you feel Scottish? Yes, but that's also a bit, um, I don't know. Um, I'm, I forgot the word I wanted to say. I guess a cheeky thing to say because <laughs> um, I... I'm not Scottish in many ways. Uh, I think only in the last maybe four years, I've started to actually engage more with Scottish people because um, when I was at the University of Edinburgh, there were very few Scottish students in the courses I was studying and that I met directly and ended up being friends with. So I was surrounded by many a bit more Scottish people when I started my PhD at Queen Margaret University and now uh, in the last year and a half when I've been doing my uh, course in speech therapy at the same university is when I ended up meeting even more Scottish people and all of my placements and my uh, part-time work uh, have been with more Scottish people so I feel a bit more connected to Scottish people and I really like uh, almost everyone I've met so far so I I do feel very at home here and very welcomed but I don't sound Scottish I don't um when someone looks at me they wouldn't think that I'm Scottish or that I behave in a Scottish way whatever that means it's really hard to define so yeah but uh when someone looks at me they won't think this person is Scottish but that doesn't prevent me from feeling really at home in uh, a Scottish environment it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I always think like your identity is like, this is who I am and this is who I want to be and this is where I want to make my home. But it is also how you see other people seeing you. If you yeah, know what absolutely. I mean. <laughs> and on that note, actually, is, uh, I remember now that I've been told that I don't act like a Bulgarian. I don't look particularly like a Bulgarian either. Uh, when I arrived here, like fellow Bulgarians have told me that um, I'm very not stereotypical in many ways. Not sure what that is necessarily due to, but um, I think it's probably related uh, to the fact that my mindset is probably more closely related to the people I've met here than to the people I grew up with in Bulgaria. I think it's probably mindset. What's different, do you think? I know this is like talking about big, big groups of people who are all different. Yeah, but absolutely. What, but what what do you think is different in the kind of mindset that you mean? 
Um, hmm. It's again, these are just very broad generalizations. Mm -hmm. And I think actually these are changing in the uh, younger Bulgarians that I'm definitely not in touch with anymore. But from kind of my um, scarce observations, I think um, it's got to do, I guess, with how optimistic you feel. Um, Bulgarians are generally quite negative, and there are very, there are very good reasons for that, uh, considering the history of the country, especially when uh, the two decades uh, when I was growing up and the one before, the 80s and 90s, were really difficult for the country. Um, also, before I was born, during the communist times, people were aware of um, basically a majority of population being involved in some way in spying on each other, which I think is really corrosive for a community. And I guess in Bulgaria, there's this sense of you have to take care of yourself and your family first. Again, very much not in everybody. I know many people who don't feel that way. Um, this is very much changing, especially since I've left Bulgaria. Uh, so my views are very outdated in that way. Is it strange? You kind of, you mentioned that younger Bulgarians think, maybe started to think differently and things are changing in Bulgaria without you being there. Is it strange to sort of see the place where you're from moving on without you? <laughs> yes and no. Um, I have been visiting quite regularly, uh, except for the last two years. Um, so I've been keeping an eye on Bulgaria in a way. Um, so I think I kind of got used to the fact that every time I come back, something looks better. There have been improvements, uh, usually in kind of the appearance of the cities being slightly better maintained or um, renovated, thing, new things being built, new buildings. So I kind of got used to the fact that every time I come back, something's slightly better. and that's my normal now. So I kind of got uh, over the feeling of, um, of people are moving on without me. Do you think, um, do you see yourself staying in Scotland at this point? Or is that too big a question for the future? I <laughs> um, hope my mum is not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have discussed that with her. Um, so I see myself staying in Scotland for the foreseeable future, but I also see myself going back for at least a couple of years um, as a speech therapist. And even before that, when I was doing research, I was always interested in bilingualism and multilingualism. And I would really like to maybe use some of the things I've learned or some of the speech therapy practices or resources that I've encountered here and maybe see if I can translate some of them or adapt some of them for uh, use in Bulgarian communities. But I think I just need slightly more uh, first-hand experience working in that profession before I decide what's the best way to approach that. But yeah, it's kind of on my mind. Mm, so you're probably going to be doing some more moving in the future at some point. Yes. Some yeah. more moving around. But this time between homes as opposed to from home yes. to a foreign place. Yeah. Do you think... Um... Will that be strange moving to working in Bulgarian after being away for so long? Because I'm sure you still, I'm sure you haven't lost your Bulgarian, but will you be having to kind of take vocabulary that you've learned in English into Bulgarian? Yes, I um, have already noticed that uh, remembering some nouns <laughs> because takes me a few more milliseconds than remembering the English nouns. But having already experienced uh, loss of Czech once, I am very familiar with how it works. So I'm kind of starting to see the first signs in that, of that in Bulgarian. Um, but uh, the antidote to that is just using the language with uh, people who don't understand English or I wouldn't mix English in with. Um, so that's one thing that I try to do 
in terms of work vocabulary, I've just learned it in English and I haven't learned the Bulgarian equivalents and I just have to make peace with that and um, just work uh, on reading the similar kind of style publications in Bulgarian, which exist. I just have to sit down and find them and start reading them. So it's something that is definitely uh, possible to achieve. It's just finding the time and purpose to do it. Mm. And then, so you you mentioned that multilingualism is something that you're very interested in in your work, and obviously it's something you have a lot of experience of. Is it something that's quite important to you personally, multilingualism? Yes, uh, of course, yeah, <laughs> because um, I, I think what I like the best, it's really cheesy, but you get access to so much more information, experiences, people's stories um, when you speak the native language. And in terms of, I guess, uh, the languages I've studied, I now mostly use to watch TV or listen to podcasts. And it does make a difference when you can hear people expressing themselves uh, in their own native language. You just end up picking up a lot about the culture, which might necess not necessarily come across in a translation as easily. Um, but yeah, I think my family is very multilingual. I have uh, Russian relatives, I have Czech relatives, Bulgarian relatives. So it's in order to be able to talk to all of these people, we have to at least uh, have some basic knowledge. And uh, yeah on a personal level I think that's probably the main aspect of it and it's probably worth saying that there is some uh misinformation about multilingualism that um is kind of in circulation a bit in the UK where um even people who aren't kind of anti-immigration sometimes you'll hear people say for example when children are learning to speak it's better for them to just hear one language at a time um which doesn't line up with the research on multilingualism, right? But it's, I think sometimes there are well-intentioned people who want the best for kids who um, are a little bit nervous about multilingualism. Um, whether or not it's their own background, they kind of feel like having too many languages might be confusing for children and things like this. Um, and you're involved in Bilingualism Matters a little bit, is that right? So this is a group that kind of helps spread information about multilingualism and kind of spread spread the science and the research to do with it. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about Bilingualism Matters? Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I would have tried to bring it up. <laughs> no, I didn't really give you a chance earlier. Yeah. <laughs> no. I had it in my notes to make sure we got it Perfect. in there. Perfect. Yes. So Bilingualism Matters. Um, I've actually I remember when I was in my last year of undergrad, I really wanted to join them. They had just started, but um, I think they were quite, um, uh, yeah, still at the beginning stages. So I didn't end up becoming a volunteer then, but I've kept an eye on them. And a couple of years ago, I saw another opportunity and I've now become a volunteer. It's uh, an organization with over 20 branches around the world, um, which, uh, its main purpose is to do science communication of things related to bilingualism. Uh, that includes raising bilingual children or using uh, different languages in education or in workplaces. And it's organized by uh, Professor Antonella Sorace. And uh, I, it's a wonderful organization that, as you were saying, dispels some of the myths. And I've seen how reassuring it is for parents whose children um, who have different languages for whatever reason in their household and whose children are exposed to different languages. Yeah, it's a just very fun organization with lots of fun events that promote uh, maintaining the minority culture uh, in the home. Uh, lots of storytelling events. Last year I was involved in uh, the refugee festival of uh, 2020 and which had to happen online of course so lots of the events have been moved online but uh yeah i really hope that we get to do some work in person uh again very soon 
And I would uh, suggest that if you don't know where to start with engaging with bilingualism matters, you can check out their podcast as well. Mm. Um, I've contributed to one of the episodes, which is mostly run by a really, really dedicated team of volunteers. Um, we will. I will share a link with this episode. Okay. So we'll make sure. So it'll be in the episode description. There'll be a little link to the podcast. Excellent. Mm. Excellent. Yes, it's a really fun podcast with lots of um, excellent guests from uh, both research background and uh, teaching background. I heartily agree. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered what what did you what did you enjoy most about making your podcast episode? What was did you did you learn anything about yourself while making it? Oh, that's a hard question. I think. Um, I guess working on this episode really allowed me to um, think about my relationship with accents I speak and to what extent I genuinely really want to change how I sound because I think if I think about it long and hard enough I realize that I'm actually fine with how I sound. I don't need to um, sound more Scottish or more Bulgarian or more anything. I'm just happy to sound the way I sound now, as long as, you know, uh, there is enough mutual comprehension happening when I'm talking to people. Um, and it's, I guess it's uh, very easy to always think that you're always not enough when speaking with a specific accent and that uh, seeking perfection and seeking the perfection of a specific sound and specific identity that you've heard somewhere is kind of like shopping and looking at the I don't know the arrangements of clothes you see in the shop and you think oh that looks really nice I want to put it on but when you decide to wear it you realize it doesn't really fit you very well so you end up just going back to your normal clothes so I think it's very similar with accents we can be easily fascinated by something else but uh when we try to put it on it's not uh the best fit that's kind of the perfect conclusion to come to isn't it (laughs) (laughs) to be like do you know what actually my accent is good the way it is Mm -hmm. this is just this is just fine and um yeah no I asked this because sometimes I think I I don't really understand anything until I make a podcast episode about it um sometimes it's good to just work things through out loud and as I was saying earlier like your identity is a big part of your identity is what you show to other people and how you think other people see you mm-hmm. um so podcasting is a really good way to work that out I suppose isn't it million million thank yous to Maria for her time and energy, her openness and for sharing her story. Thanks as always to John McDermott and Martha Ryan, the Accentricity Team of Dreams, to Seb Felt for the music and to Aileen Marshall for the transcription. Remember to have a look in the episode description for a link to the merch page where you can get yourself a classy wee t-shirt and also for links to our Patreon and Steady pages and a link to the Bilingualism Matters podcast much language such talk thanks for listening